What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture. My name is Patchy and joined by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing, man? Doing good. Wonder Woman coming to our TV screens this Christmas Day. HBO Max. Pat, how do you feel about another blockbuster being cut off at the theatrical level? Feel sad, man. Um, you know, it's it's starting to become winter up here. You know, sun's going down really early. Looking outside at a dark, you know, outside a dark window as we speak. It's good it's for my green uh, screen. It, it, it is good for the green screen. Looks great behind you, but uh, you know, it's a little depressing this time of year, especially as we we go towards the holidays. People are being encouraged not to see their families on the holidays for safety reasons, and just the rising COVID numbers. Uh, you, I think you really just start to reflect on just how shitty this year has been. And this pales in comparison to like the real world cost of things, but we are a culture podcast. So we're going to talk about culture and not being able to see movies like Wonder Woman 1984 in theaters. Uh, technically, I guess you still could if you can find a theater that's open, but nowhere near me will be. Um, so I'm definitely going to see it on the small screen. I'm probably going to see a lot of these movies we mean we saw mulan already on the small screen taken away from the big screen christopher nolan's most recent movie was is going to be video on demand that's the way i'm going to be seeing that which is just totally not how you want to see a christopher nolan movie the first time as someone who saw it in theaters that is correct (laughs) so uh i feel i feel sad but also i guess grateful that we're getting you know some of these movies to us early I don't know, a, a real mix of emotion. How are you feeling about it, though? Yeah, I mean, now at this point, I, I just think about the long-term health of the theatrical business, of course, which we've talked about before, and also when studios will be comfortable putting stuff back in theaters again once theaters are comfortable being open again. You know, it's two sides of the coin. But Wonder Woman at least makes a little bit of sense because it's being used to push HBO Max, which has obviously been a kind of a funny confounding launch to most people due to the delineation between old school HBO premium cable and now a pay traditional streaming service version. It's all the mm-hmm. same. It all costs the same, but a lot of people still don't have HBO max. They might just have normal HBO through their cable. So it's like getting people to making people understand what HBO max is because they're going to want to see Wonder Woman 1984 probably makes sense and you'd hope is is worth the large box office losses that this will cause yeah that, that that's a good point something i hadn't thought about too much but um you know it's uh it's the sort of thing where at the same like at, at one point seeing it early is definitely it makes sense for hbo uh, hbo max but on the other hand it's like Man, I feel like HBO has so much that other places don't have, like the quality of there. I mean, yeah. uh, I am fortunate enough to have an HBO Max subscription, and I was just flipping through all the classic movies they have, all the Cartoon Network stuff, all the you know Adult Swim stuff. That having that like right at your fingertips, I feel like they already have a lot. But yeah, certainly, I guess bringing these new big name things definitely ups that profile. But I agree, like the long term health of movie theaters is 
starting to become more and more worrisome. You know, I just the other day got an email from the uh, AMC Stubbs A-list that mm-hmm. said, you know, you can push back your decision in another couple of months because they just ain't going to be opening near me anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it doesn't make anyway. So. Right. So if anyone had to make that decision, of course, they're not going to re-up. It's, uh, yeah. it's very, very concerning. I don't know. This is a kind of a bummer way to start off the podcast. I feel like maybe we should uh, move on to something else. Any last thoughts on this? Well, at least we get to see it. You know, it's yeah. not a uh, delayed endlessly. You know, it's not pushed back a full year to say next uh, this coming June. You know, it's supposed to come out June twenty twenty. Like, so at least there's that something to talk about and see. Give me more Chris Pine and less Chris Pratt. Um, oh yeah, but give me more Mando because <laughs> we're talking. Baby Yoda and the Mandalorian this past week, and actually not that much of Baby Yoda or the Mandalorian in this past week's episode, where they team back up with our good friend Lavar back in uh, what's what's the name of the planet again? Navarro. Navarro, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, which I should remember because of Dave Navarro, classic <laughs> guitarist for a lot of bands back in the eighties and nineties. But um, really, I think this episode seem to be setting up for things outside of the Mandalorian. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's sure. You get, you're getting a, the last two weeks, we've got a lot of plot movement as opposed to the more episodic vibe we've had with a lot of the Mandalorian to that point. Yeah. And, you know, I think especially in this one where you have a lot of, well, first of all, directed by Carl Weathers, this episode, which, uh, it's great. And I'm sorry, I said LeVar Burton when I meant Carl Weathers. That was <laughs> a mistake on my part. But um, I think really, I mean, a couple of really cool moments in the last couple of episodes. But this seems to be setting up a uh, a very interesting idea of what if this was a, uh, I don't know, Gina Carano type uh, show or something like that. Mm-hmm. What if this was a... Uh, uh, Carl Weathers spinoff type show or what if it was just following them around that world in general and I think it seems pretty much like they're like hey get ready for this because this is coming yeah sure sure I mean I think the the uh, bet right now is that it'll be around the assumed Rosario Dawson Ahsoka Tano character um, perhaps with Dave Filoni's involvement spinning off from the Mandalorian but there's has been talk of a Cara Dune Gina Carano spinoff as well um Gina Crown's been a bit controversial online as of late. Who knows if that would actually factor into any decision-making. But yeah, I mean, this past week, you kind of got, like, continuation of that season one thread. Like, you could tell that that scientist guy had, like, Camino insignias, right? What they want with Baby Yoda. Now you know they were literally, like, testing stuff with his blood. You saw experiment stuff in in those, like, uh, tanks. Pseudo, like, uh, Snoke in Palpatine's lair in Rise of Skywalker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did we get some purge troopers hanging out with Moff Gideon at the end of the episode? Getting a lot. And of course, all the uh, Bo-Katan, Katie Sackhoff stuff yeah. a week beforehand. So Mandalorian is kicking off in the high gear, and we know that Tamura Morrison's Boa Fett's lingering, and mm-hmm. Ahsoka, who's already been name-dropped on the show, so it's just a matter of time. Could you foresee the Mandalorian ever moving away from this Mandalorian and potentially not involving Pedro Pascal, especially because we mentioned how there's been some potential 
discord there between him and uh you know him on set i guess i'll say um no because i i actually think we're setting up for pedro pascal to feel more part of the show because now we understand that his sect of mandalorians were more uh extreme extreme and radical and the whole not taking your helmet off thing is not uh actually the way it's it's a not normal which is what pete fans of the cartoons uh were thinking this whole time so we assume that would mean that eventually we get to see pedro pascal's face and he can uh, act more you know besides just physically and giving voice work Mm -hmm. so yeah i i don't expect baby yoda nor pedro pascal's jarring character to leave anytime soon when they meet up with ahsoka so you're not expecting Baby Yoda to be left with Ahsoka, though. Yeah, well, Baby Yoda will be around. Yeah, maybe maybe Baby Yoda switches shows, but I'm Baby not sure. Yoda ain't going nowhere. No, no way. Sure. <laughs> uh, Dave, I I want to jump real quick though to one more thing before we get into the actual docket we have for today, which is a Netflix movie that came out a couple weeks ago called The Holiday, starring your girl Emma Roberts. Big fan. Big fan. Of Emma Roberts? Yeah, she's good. Scream Queens. Underrated say, Ryan Murphy production. You love Scream Queens. Uh, yeah, but this this stars Emma Roberts, Luke Bracey, um, and a lot of other people you don't know, except for Kristen Chenoweth is in this. And uh, <laughs> I feel like the only movies I ever see her in now are just Christmas movies. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe that's because I also just happened to catch part of Four Christmases, which she's also in, like right, right before I watched this. But um, very... Uh, you know, it's funny. Like, I think about Christmas movies in a very specific way. Um, we we talked about Last Christmas last year. Um, mm. Last Christmas we talked about oh, it, yeah, actually. <laughs> and uh, I would say that that, for production value, is probably one of the upper-tier Christmas movies. Now, in terms of things you talk about it, with cultural impact, it's certainly not up there. Um, but, you know, just in terms of how it looks, it looks pretty good. And I feel like Holiday Falls very comfortably above Hallmark and Lifetime Christmas movies, which is a genre of trash TV all of its own. And then like right below those high production ones. Hmm. And you know, it's actually kind of a good lane for it because on the one hand I was watching and I was like, man, this is absolute shit. But on the other hand, I was like, this is also way more entertaining than those Lifetime ones. Like this is actually a step up. That was literally the Alonzo morning gift happening in real time, like throughout the entire movie. And, uh, you know, Emma Roberts, very charming. I, I think she has some some good moments in this. Um, some of the writing in this is just really, really bad. Um, like, literally, I mean, he was being crude on purpose, but literally a part where uh, Luke Bracey's uh, character Jackson says to Sloan, Emma Roberts, mm-hmm. your tits look really great in that dress. And I just was like, all right. Like, <laughs> I mean, he's supposed to be just a crude dude, just in general. Uh, you know, both like kind of over like Christmas and romance and holidays. They they just always go to each other's events on holidays, so they don't have to hear the story, the the questioning from their family, so to speak. Um, yeah. But even that, I was like, I mean, there, there's just no no coming back from a line like that. I feel like. Um, but you know what? Overall, I'm gonna get like a C minus. Like. I've watched okay. worst Christmas movies, and this is on the Christmas movie scale, not yeah. the actual movie scale. I think Christmas movies at this kind of level, uh, minimal effort, obviously cheaply produced, it's another emerging lane for Netflix to totally. just 
make this big wealth, big volume of these type of films to just have and keep people on Netflix around all the time. Here. It's yep. uh, pretty easy to see the playbook, but you know it's working. Yeah, and you know, I, I actually had the same thought when I was comparing it to those Lifetime movies because I was like, yeah, they if they just get a stable of these, like, you know, you put that shuffle button on if you're a middle-aged white mom, and why would you ever need Lifetime or Hallmark again? You know, especially <laughs> if, you know, potentially they could end up getting those same movies made for, what, like a million-dollar budget or something like that. It's, like, totally worth the, yeah. the money for them. I just wanted to follow up on the topic of Emma Roberts and poor films because there was this movie that came out two years ago that I wanted to see. It is uh, currently on prime uh, and it had a brief release in 2018. It's called little Italy. It's uh, was this critically panned like rom-com with Emma Roberts and Hayden Christensen as the uh, children of rival New York pizzeria owners that fall in love. Apparently the movie's terrible, but I've always wanted to watch it just to support uh, two of my uh King, kings and queens in emma and hayden haven't watched it yet though maybe i'll get to I'll, it uh, yeah whenever you watch <laughs> please report back because um emma, emma roberts was probably was actually not probably was definitely my favorite part of uh this whole thing so uh well we can talk about her anytime on the podcast but let's talk about saint john next um which we've never talked about him before on this nope. and you know, I was like, why Why does Dave want to listen to St. John? Why does he want to check out this album? And then I get to the end, and I, I know exactly why Dave wants to talk about this. Because he wants to talk about a song that came out four years ago, but was remixed last year and blew up on TikTok. Is that right, Dave? That's correct. Roses, which if you listen to the original St. John song, Roses, from 2016, you'll hear a very different vibe from the uh worldwide hit everyone knows today it's more of like a dance hall song a much slower tempo but that remix by uh Imenbeck, a kazakh dj and i remember when the remix came out i was like is Imenbeck like a edm scene person I- i'm supposed to know am i like not up on Imenbeck? no he's pretty nascent apparently so <laughs> that was nice to feel but yeah you listen to that <laughs> remix and like wow this is really pitched up this is quite different but i think it's a very effective remix oh, and you cool. understand why it became TikTok hit because it is a very catchy beat. Yes. Uh, great. It perfect for TikTok just with that drop in general around the chorus. Um, but yeah, the, the remix is fire. The uh, original song and especially the, uh, the future remix, I guess mm-hmm. it's on here. Uh, no bueno. And I think that's the thing, Dave is you, to get to that last song. I had to listen to about 37 other minutes of music on this from St. John. And I'm wondering was this a pleasurable 37 minutes before the remix for you? Yeah, I think it's pretty middling. Like, And the, the reason I wanted to listen to this album is because it's not the first St. John album. He's 34. He's been working in the industry, albeit with a low profile for a while. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see, like, will this album like do somewhat well for him? Because TikTok does not often drive success to the artist so much as drive success to the individual song and the song almost becomes removed from the artist and becomes uh, owned by tiktok in a certain sense you can look at this with a lot of recent tiktok hits where the trickle down isn't actually what you'd expect all the time when it comes to the music and i want to see like does saint john like d- does he stick to what he's been doing does he try and change up and follow that remix blueprint and try and chase more success 
and it will it be successful we'll find that last part out uh, later but from what i gathered it seems like he did not compromise who he was but this kind of r&b and hip-hop light hip-hop is not super special i don't think like there's some moments i liked on this but I think I think it's it's pretty forgettable. I think the best part about St. John would just kind of be his delivery. He does have a unique voice from time to time. He stands out at least. But the songs themselves aren't often that special. You know, I think if anything, um, you can definitely see his profile is, has risen for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you look at the features on While the World is Burning and, uh, you know, the, the first quarter of the album, feels like a strict St. John album. And then it starts to kind of go in a bunch of different directions. You know, you got a little Uzi on this, uh, a boogie, the baby, uh, Kanye Jid, like there's a lot of Kalani, you know, at the, near the end, you have a lot of big name people on this album, which is usually a pretty good sign, you know, getting the co-sign from these people in some sense, or at least wanting to be associated Mm -hmm. uh, with him. I think they come on to varying degrees. And like you said, not all of it's very memorable, but I actually feel like the moments I remember most are the features. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I really think Jid kills it. Um, Jaddy is, the, I really liked his verse. And I think just like as a distinctive, like it caught my ear while I was listening to this. Um, you know, I thought the song with Lil Uzi, uh, High School Reunion Prom was, was pretty good. effective. And it, so- it sounds really like whimsical and, and, cool i don't know i thought that one was great and i even liked uh uh kalani you know black six lack i'm not always a <laughs> big fan of but i thought kalani sounded pretty nice and you know she always kind of brings this so yeah. a couple of of good moments but nothing that i think was super overwhelming yeah high school reunion prom definitely stood out to me i think that's probably his best performance st john's mm-hmm. um you know that has a that has a catchy kind of sad boy hook to it but his verses are a little different tempo as well and then uzi i think has a really nice flow on that mm. and fits the vibe uh apparently saint john actually has a, like does have a relationship with kanye this wasn't just like a mailed in feature from him I'm, i would not be surprised to see saint john on a future kanye project to be honest as like you know the the muse of the week for kanye at the time you know or whatever that that will be worth by the time that happens so right uh you know, although I do have to say, if, if that turns out to be the case, uh, we really did like 070 this year. So, that's right. Uh, you know, if you can get that 070 bump, or at least that creative inspiration, maybe that'll work out. Um, any last thoughts about St. John before we move on? I want to see how these sales do. I want, like, do, does TikTok drive a big, big week for him? I mean, St. John still, just really off of Roses, is a top 100 artist on Spotify right now in terms of monthly listeners. Will that translate to? album sales tbd tiktok the power of tiktok um let's let's jump to some people we were talking about last week on our grammys pod our grammy uh nomination prediction pod which is bts we were talking about how they might get some shine some love some recognition time you're hearing this you would likely already know if bts gets nominated for pop pop, best pop song pop performance something like that um TBD. They're probably up against it in terms of getting now, but I would not be surprised because they have a ton of momentum, as and anyone with a pulse would know by this by this point. 
and we've talked about BTS a couple of times on the pod. Map of the Soul, um, you know, earlier was it this year when they yeah, dropped Map of the Soul Seven back in February, right before quarantine, yes. actually. Crazy, um, you know, and and I think we also talked about Persona the year before, if I'm yep. recalling. So mm-hmm. there, there's a couple of uh, of things to go back and reference if you want to hear our earlier thoughts. But B, their newest album, uh, you know, it was interesting. This album moved my opinion of them ever so slightly. I still think that they're a rocky ship, you know, in terms of uh, just. Uh, potential and in terms of quality of pop music they're they're definitely at the top in my opinion in the world and uh the numbers will back that up but um this this album felt more jonas brothery to me which i didn't know if that was such a good move um you know i I think dynamite is probably the song that solidifies that for me i mean that feels like it could have just been a Jonas Brothers song in a lot of ways but mm-hmm. even the vibe throughout just was this more like toned back pop you know R&B influenced sound that seemed a little bit more I guess they're always in their feelings but this felt a little bit more like uh lover boyish than, than anything did, did you get that same sense or am I off oh sure yeah I mean so you have Map of the Soul 7 was an hour-long full-length album on that you have still a wide range uh, of music as their sound is wont to do, but you have notably had the biggest song to date for them at the time on, which is a very anthemic K-pop song, kind of traditional, but still really great. And that's probably my favorite BTS song still. Uh, you don't get that anthemic song on B. You know, if you listen to the guys do press on for, for this album, they'll say that the reason it even exists is because they had more downtime in 2020 due to the lack of touring and, I mean, that's an obvious thing to think about, but BTS normally are very, very busy people. They perform a lot. They are always working. And you look at the credits on this, uh, the guys co-wrote almost all the songs. There are production credits. They're more hands-on than the typical K-pop star unit. You know, Big Hit, their management, did a lot of the early decision-making in most K-pop groups the work is done in-house and not actually by the performers. So it seems like this is something BTS just kind of wanted to make and is reflexive of how they've been feeling. And I think that sad boy, uh, but still optimistic sound does make sense for something coming out at the end of 2020, given the year they've had as well. And then at the end, of course, you have something that's kind of pure fun, pure pop, uh, and also a clear play at American audiences in Dynamite, notably their first song, All in English, which also, of course, debuted at number one. It was a huge success for them. It changed how BTS performs in America as a result. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to see going in was, were they going to make an album that was all Dynamite, very Westernized? They didn't do that. You know, I think you get a lot of the stuff that they still like to do where, you know, the sad boy stuff, right? Like, I think a lot of the songs on B are close to like louder than bombs on Map of the Soul Seven, more mm-hmm. um, understated. But I still find a lot, a lot of moments to like uh, "Fly to My Room" and "Telepathy." I think stood out to be the most among the new tracks. What about you? Yeah, you know, I think I really liked the first one. "Life Goes On" is probably my my second favorite song to Dynamite. Um, you mentioned "Telepathy" too. Um, you know, I, I don't think any of the tracks are necessarily bad. That's the thing is that this is still like really 
solid pop music and, and the grooves and melodies on this are really wonderful as well. I think I just, you know, I'm thinking about how Map of the Soul 7 started, right? And like intro persona is this like yeah. huge rock guitar, like blaring song. It kind of like sets the tone for this expansive, you know, uh, album. And then this just feels so toned down. And, and yeah. I think it just feels a little bit more like they were going for a more specific type view than maybe something earth, earth shattering, but right. definitely, you, you know, you, you can't, you can't knock them. Cause like you said, this is something that is more of a product of the time they're living in more so than, anything that was probably they've been planning for a long time yeah yeah absolutely and i think flat in my room for me had a lot of those bts trademarks to me i think that chorus has a really nice rhythm to it uh you have uh, jimin and Young like harmonizing really nice on that and then later you get a really good rap verse from sugar as well like the the union of of vocal pop and hip-hop that we associate with k-pop kind of textbook stuff right there on flat in my room and then telepathy that production stood out to me that's kind of that's disco pop you know disco pop obviously very in vogue these days with Dua Lipa and friends um and that that, that that's what I thought of when I heard that one I liked that a lot uh, RM I think I had a notable rappers on that um but yeah I, I agree I think Map of the Soul 7 is more of the sound I usually like from them because that's just kind of the k-pop I like more but mm-hmm. I think, I mean, the fact that we even got a second album from them this year is is kind of a win to me. Like, totally. Um, so I'll take it. And like, I mean, when Dynamite came out in earlier in the uh, later in the summer, way after Episode Seven, I was like, wait a minute, like, BTS is gearing back up again. This is kind of <laughs> crazy. Like, <laughs> they just don't stop. Um, they, they're and, a machine, know, man, for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and since we last talked about them, there was a really notable development, which was that Big Hit Entertainment. Uh, had an ipo like the most anticipated public offering in south korea in several years and the the management company that runs bts and makes i think like 80 percent of their money from bts it's really just bts the company uh was valued at four billion dollars and all the bts guys got a lot of stock and became multi-millionaires off that and they're already very wealthy but like uh it, w- it was an interesting I think like business music industry development because because the BTS army, the loyal stands of BTS that are legion, because they are so loyal, they've almost been uh, weaponized. And I think all the army would say knowingly and happily to like make the company and and the band even more money, you know, because they're so invested in the success of this group that they're looking to buy shares in in the band and driving the price up as a result it's kind of interesting because it's 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 uncommon it's it's a new new thing bts the company uh (laughs) how do you think nostalgia the company would do on the nasdaq (laughs) i don't know if we're ready to be listed yet you know Uh, we're subscribe at youtube.com plus nostalgia pod though if you'd like to get make that happen hey do it and and also check out the new meg the stallion album because uh she's dropping some good news for us when she dropped this uh, full length, really expansive, and I, I thought surprising album in a way. You know, it, it's it, so it's interesting, right? When we talk about Meg, it's it's hard to really. Um, it's I think it's hard to like talk about her without addressing some of the the things that have been happening in her life leading up to this, right? So, uh, shit with Tory Lanes, that whole saga has been absurd and ridiculous, and 
kind of just like sad in some ways the way that's been covered and like the yeah. victim blaming in, in a lot the of initial ways. reaction was uh pr- pretty terrible the way people uh uh made light of it honestly yeah. but I, I would say i think megan uh definitely wrestled it back and put it to bed frankly yeah. right away at the start of this album with shots fired that honestly when i heard that song started i was like in a daze and barely heard what she said the first time because it was <laughs> honestly revelatory to me to see yeah. her uh flip who shot you mm-hmm. by biggie's biggie and then flip the meaning of who shot you because she was the one who got shot not not tupac of course right and like to just pointedly just belittle tory lanes and put this whole thing to bed by making a song that's better than any song Tory Lane has ever made. Like, it was fucking fire. I yeah. fucking love it. It's so good. Um, but she also, you know, just to kind of finish the preface, also dropped WAP, which gained a lot of attention. Uh, was one of the hottest songs in the country for a while. For I a think while. probably one of the um, songs that this year will be most remembered for. Um, and, you know, it, it got her talked about in, in some good ways and, and some not so good ways if you're uh, Ben Shapiro. So, um, you know, Sugar being the last album we heard, from, oh, probably the last big album we heard pre-quarantine, you know, I mean, yep, right it's, it, it's kind of crazy that now just eight months later, we're getting another Meg album. And Sugar, I think we, we felt like was, it was good, but not great. And we we're wondering if what Meg was going to have in store next. And it seems like good news she came very inspired pulling from a lot of past hip-hop uh, uh classics to really build mm-hmm. this album up yeah it's it's honestly hilarious to reflect back on early march uh like the, the before times uh and, and think about sugar because when sugar came out remember meg was in the midst of major label issues with uh 1501 you know her uh mm-hmm. her, her, her label and sugar was an incomplete form and was able to be released due to court injunctions and whatnot and uh at the it didn't have a good first week's uh sales numbers and then i think you know to to megan fans that might have been concerning but i'm really talking about that right and then just fast forward but a few weeks and savage uh becomes a major hit taking off on tiktok later getting to number one after the beyonce remix comes out and then you have wap come out even later in the summer another song that goes to number one you're like oh wait no no not make it fine megan is is certified uh fresh yeah yeah she's like like the, the money is there all of a sudden like it, it, it flipped like that she's already famous and popular uh as of late 2018 but but like just just like that she became like instant mainstream you know mm-hmm. um and and that was kind of interesting so i guess it makes sense to follow up that with another full-length project and she's building this as her debut album even if <laughs> she's been a star for some time it's kind of a funny distinction as we've talked about before with people like chance the rapper uh but yeah i, th- I think good news it has all the hallmarks you want from good megan stein records yeah it's uh it's an absolute banger of a record man i mean it's i think this is not only a step in the right direction for meg but it, i think this really ascends and solidifies her as one of the biggest rappers in the game right now you know that um, question and I, and I, 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 you know, it's hard because we, the easy thing to do is to compare her to Cardi, but I think for a lot of reasons, her and Cardi get thrown in the same conversations. It feels like she's ascended to potentially biggest female artist in the rap game. 
uh, I don't know. It's she, she's at least up there, which is I think it's her and Cardi right now. I think in terms of currency, they're both ahead of, ahead of Nicki Minaj. Yeah, for sure. So it just it just feels like this does so much for her, which is uh, such a, a great thing. And maybe we should talk about the things it does and and, and how it helped her up here. So as you mentioned, you know, flipping who shot you. Um, it's the first song on the album totally eviscerating Tory Lanez what a way to start then I mean what other songs what other moments really grab you on this album so I you know when we think of like what is Megan Thee Stallion's hallmarks I think part of that right away is is what she does technically from the jump with shots fired this shit is straight flow she has just impeccable flow the whole time and that the best parts of Sugar those first four tracks ain't equal savage B-I-T-C-H, um, that was all good flow, right? It was when she wanted to sing a little bit and change it up later on in the EP that were like, wait a minute, this is not nearly as good. Mm-hmm. She basically throws that all away on good news, with the exception, I think, uh, Don't Rock Me to Sleep at the end, which I also think is a bit forgettable because she's trying to do like weird singing stuff. For the most part, it's all flow. Yeah. And she's just so good at it that like it always sounds good. And then you combine that with, I think, some great wordplay throughout the track list. Mm-hmm. Like, on, on what, what, what's new? Beat that pussy red. Sue Wu. Uh, <laughs> on Sugar Baby. Invest in this pussy, boy. Support black business. <laughs> on Shots Fired. I told him you're not popping. You're just on the remix. That's a reference to Tory Lanez being on the Jack Harlow What's Popping. <laughs> uh, and my favorite one. On a... Uh, fuck, I forgot what song this was on. Uh, Pussy like a wild fox looking for a Sasuke. That's a Naruto reference. Like the <laughs> the, the wordplay is awesome the whole time. Yeah. yeah, and and like you mentioned, Flo. I mean, not only the way that she like mimics flows um, throughout this, but she just sounds so effortless and like mm-hmm. just totally in command the whole record, um, which is really yeah. impressive. You know, she never gets uh, uh, you know beaten by any of your guests. The guests all for the most part fit in with her. But it's always a Meg song. Yeah. And, you know, you, you think about, um, like, uh, what, probably one of, my, one of my favorite moments near the end, which is Girls in the Hood, uh, mm-hmm. taking Boys in the Hood from NWA and uh, just totally taking Easy E's flow on that so seamlessly. And, yeah, it just sounds so fucking good. It's, it's insane. Right. And the thing about Girls in the Hood, which had come out a few months ago, Boys in the Hood, a, a classic rap song, but notably quite misogynistic like a lot mm-hmm. of NWA stuff. Girls in the Hood slipping that once again because it's Meg being in control as uh, a confident woman, you know? Mm-hmm. Once again, like Shots Fire flipping it around. And I think that's kind of been, I think, the, the overwhelming, you know, takeaway with her lyrics uh, ever since probably last year with the Fever mixtape is that Megan, she, yeah, she, yes, she's raunchy about sex. She likes rapping about sex. That's clear. Many a banger already out of that. But it's not just because she wants to be vulgar. It's because she is confident and it's about, it's like about her independence, right? And, and, and like, honestly, it's, it's a really, I think it's a really revelatory, like feminist uh, point of view, right? And, and that's what makes WAP so great. It, it, it is the confidence, is the carefree nature that is all of that, right? And like, even like City Girls, they kind of do the same stuff from time mm-hmm. to time as well. So, I, you know, Megan, at this point, when putting the bed the Tory Lane stuff and just dropping a, a banger album that does all the things you want Megan Stein to do at this point, 
I think it just really solid, as you said before, solidifies her as just a a force to be reckoned with. And I really do not expect it to change anytime soon because she's sticking to what she's good at and what she's good at lasts because again, it's flow. It is wordplay. Yeah, I agree. I think her being unabashedly uh, pro-feminist, pro pretty much everything like women's bodies, women's rights, those sorts of things is uh, a perfect way to kind of describe how she's, taking control of her brand and, and what her music means. And um, it's, it's really uh, funny because as you were talking, I was like, well, you know, Dave, some people might not really like that. And I was like, then I was just thinking about the people who don't. And it's like, don't listen to it. Then. <laughs> Fuck those people, man. Like they're <laughs> such losers. Um, you made the comment about a, a Ben, ben Shapiro. Shapiro. I, was, I was about to do a bit. I was about to like do impersonation, but I held back. He went viral for uh, deadpanning the, the WAP <laughs> lyrics, obviously. But macaroni in a pot, boy. Well, I was just thinking, you remember, he had some comments about Harry Styles and what Harry Styles was wearing on a photo shoot recently. And I was just thinking, you know, this is not Suckler, obviously, but uh, Harry Styles in a dress uh, still makes Ben Shapiro's wife wetter than what we know. <laughs> Ben's uh, wife uh, gets for him as he does uh, during the WAP reading. Uh, well, well, Dave, actually, my, my wife is a doctor, and uh, it's actually not good for uh, a woman to get wet during sex. So uh, I'm actually very concerned about um, these these two women. You're uh, going to tell me that. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's just say you're right, and yeah. getting wet is what you want. Like, right? Okay. Oh, God. That sucks. <laughs> oh, man. It's uh, it, well, what we should probably move away from this, but um, <laughs> what... Uh, any of the features that really you really liked any that stood out to you? Yeah, I think well. So the Savage remix been out for a while, of course. And it's a really good remix. You yeah, know, a good a good remix, uh, traditional remix, not like a DJ remix. A good remix, kind of uncommon. Doesn't happen all that often. A lot of times, you just kind of throw shit together to boost the streams. It's not really that intentional of like a, a remix to redo the song. Mm-hmm. But Beyonce, I think, really brings a lot to this. There's a bit of harmonization notable quotables from beyonce it's a good remix um i also would say that SZA makes a good impression on freaky girls always love to hear SZA feature because we don't get them all that often and i was surprised to to like the movie as much as i did with little dirk little dirk's hook uh is pretty simple pretty repetitive but for some reason i just find it incredibly catchy i think it's really the beat that does it for me Mm -hmm. um crybaby with the baby uh not nearly as memorable for me as a cash shit last year between the two of them. But I think for the most part, the guests are pretty good. Yeah. You know, I, the only one I really wanted to um, shout out, I, I do think they all are pretty solid was SZA. Just nice to hear SZA on a track. Um, and, and the song sounds very much like a, a SZA song, but not totally like, like she, she took it over, which is cool. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for that, that follow-up album to come out is I guess really what I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, any last thoughts on good news before we, we close the book on it for this week? Uh, yeah, man. I mean, I think the, the only times I, I, w- I was not really into it, like I said before, Don't Rock Me to Sleep, and even outside a little bit as well. Those two tracks at the end, it's just a different energy that you can tell from this and Sugar that it's something Meg is interested in exploring, but, and, and I'm, not not trying to cut her off from that. Obviously, Cardi B was able to really branch out with something like I like it by changing mm-hmm. up the sound. It, it, it's not not to say that. I think Meg should just keep working at it to, to, to figure out how she wants to diversify a little bit. But even if she never diversifies what she does right now, 
is more than enough. <laughs> um, I guess the last thing I just want to say, uh, shout out to Popcan. I feel like he uh, fell off the map. So, you know, kind of nice to hear from him. He actually had a well-liked project come out this year. And we didn't uh, talk about it. It's We did not talk about it. It's called The Fixed Tape. It came out back in August. And people that are in the know on Popcan said it might have been his best. But we did not talk about that one. So well, he's not uh, off the map. Uh, totally. Just you got to pay attention. Pat. He's off my radar, I guess I'll say. <laughs> Why don't we uh, move on to something that is very much on my radar, which is the new Steve McQueen anthology film series, which is, uh, I guess, dropping on Amazon Prime yeah. um, called Small Axe in, uh, in England. The, the first episode uh, came out this past weekend on Amazon Prime, and I watched it, Dave, and it's called Mangrove. And it stars Letitia Wright, probably is the most famous person in this. But, you know, uh, Sean Parks, Malachi Kirby, uh, Rashonda Sandal, you know, uh, probably some people that aren't so well known. But, um, you know, Steve McQueen, last time, what we really talked about him was Widows. Yep. 2018. Great movie. Underrated movie. Underrated, underseen, underappreciated. Widows is awesome and it deserved better, frankly. Probably one of my most memorable movie-going uh, moments when yeah. people uh, when when the twist in Widows comes about very uh, very memorable. Mm-hmm. But um, check out our review for that. Mangrove, Dave. I mean, this is just awesome. Mm-hmm. Really good. Um, you know, pr- premiered at the uh, New York Film Festival, um, and you know they, they showed I think three episodes, three episodes, yep. of- three of the five. And it seems like they each have a distinctive feel, but um, this one, which focused on a story in Notting Hill about um, police harassing and you know uh, systemic racism in this mm-hmm. uh, small town um, to harass this uh, Trinidadian uh, person who is opening his own restaurant, um, and then the the, the race uh, protest that came from that very uh, very captivating film and uh, you know steve mcqueen obviously the first black man to win the academy award for best director um very accomplished filmmaker tells these sorts of stories really well um i I think he was just in total command here and there's so much to dig into but i wanted to um to kind of seed the floor and just kind of get your thoughts before we start breaking down what we really liked or didn't like yeah just to clarify uh it was first black director to win best picture he didn't didn't actually win best director that year But uh, still, he's clearly a world-class filmmaker. I think everyone knows that by now. And to me, like just going into small acts, I was like, how, I'm, it just in my, my neurotic brain, I was like, how do I quantify what the hell this is? Because it's called an anthology film series, but then also called the TV series. And I'm like, is this like Black Mirror? Can I just call it, think about it that way, right? But it premiered, as you said, at New York Film Festival, film, emphasis in the film there, and it's going week to week. For what we know, like half of this run are feature length films for the most part, but not all of them are. I guess I'm going to think of it as, as a TV series, but it's really a series of movies, I guess. Mm-hmm. Either way, it doesn't really matter how you, it doesn't really matter because the work is the work. And, you know, going into this, I was actually mo- going to Mango specifically, I was most interested to see Malachi Kirby. Because hmm. Malachi Kirby, actually, you have seen him before. Black Mirror, season three, Men Against Fire episode, 
those that's the first season that Netflix made. Men Against Fire, not one of the most well liked ones. He plays like this like future like military man who's like mm. killing people, and then he finds out that like what he's seeing, yeah, is, he's killing like civilians and stuff. Kind right. of a mediocre uh, concept for Black Mirror standards, but Kirby was the lead there, and. The reason I wanted to see more of him was because he hasn't done much since that. But I remember seeing a John Boyega interview, and John Boyega is in the third episode of Small Axe. And Boyega like cited Kirby as one of those like one of his peers as a, as a young, uh, talented black actor from from England. And I'm like, huh, I should really keep an eye out for Malachi Kirby. And sure enough, he gets cast in the Steve McQueen project. I think that's a good enough co-sign as any. And he he really stood out to me. Yeah, this for sure. And then, of course, his fellow Black Mirror alum, Letitia Wright, is, is great as well. Um, but it's hard not to think about Mangrove without also thinking about something we talked about recently, which would be the Trial of Chicago 7. Very mm. similar subject matter. The real life events are taking place only like a year and a half, two years apart, albeit on different continents. And Steve McQueen's uh, treatment of the material and you know his attitudes and the way he way he what he focuses on is is quite different, of course, from what we expect from Aaron Sorkin. So they are quite the companion piece, I would say. Yeah, um, I I think when I'm when I, I was left sitting with this film pretty much the the whole rest of the day after I watched it, and I think what I was really most taken by in this movie is how McQueen does such a wonderful and uh you know really like he's he's really in command of his ability to develop these relationships and really like make you get the sense of what this place was what it felt like to live there if you were a black person living there um and he does it in a way where the first third first half of the film is super engaging and fun you just kind of want to live in this world and party with these people and dance around and play the steel drums and then it so quickly becomes a totally brilliant uh courtroom drama which is just super enthralling and it's just like two very distinct movies that seamlessly transition together and build out to be i think larger than the sum of their parts in a lot of ways you know the the messages and and all the different topics of of racism and and uh, you know, it, it was just really, really well done. And you're totally right. I actually found myself afterwards, like sometimes calling it like the the trial of Mangrove or something like that, because it's the feels, Mangrove Nine. I think yeah, that's what it's called. yeah, it feels so much like the trial of the Chicago Seven, especially even how they're like using like the newspapers and stuff to mm-hmm. um, real and, and just like the media stuff to like acknowledge these pieces. It's very, uh, very interesting. You know, you you mentioned uh, Malachi Kirby. I thought, obviously, playing Darkus, he had probably one of the meatiest roles. Darkus representing himself in court, um, really pushing forward the the movement and keeping in mind of you know uh, identifying the systemic racism going on is kind of the point of this whole thing, um, at least for him. Uh, I I really like Letitia Wright as well, but the uh, the actor that played the uh, restaurant keeper yes. uh sean parks yeah i thought he was brilliant as well yeah. um i thought he had one of the most interesting roles as he kind of like teetered on this like reluctant leader 
kind of just wanting to be a restaurant owner type person, wanting to create this right. community, but also being a protector. Um, I felt like he had a very fine line to walk and uh, I thought he did it brilliantly. How, how did you feel about, feel about his performance? Yeah, no, I think he's really good, right? Because he, he demonstrates like that pain and that rage mm-hmm. from a different perspective. Right? Letitia yeah. Wright's character is a Black Panther. Mm-hmm. She's a young, educated, politically minded person. It's a different perspective, right? And you see how, you know, this guy running a restaurant, he's going to have a different perspective on this. And apparently, you know, uh, they don't they don't actually like spend too much time talking about, I think it was the Rio, like a previous establishment that had other run-ins with the police, right? But like you can tell he's like, he he's just kind of losing his grip, right? As the police continue to harass them. And I think, at, and, and to credit to McQueen, because the way he builds uh, everything up in Mangrove, which again, you know, it's a two hour movie, right? Um, mm-hmm. The way he builds everything up is you just, there's just a sense of, of, of dread and, and devastation in the beginning. And I think when you get that, like, probably this, I think it's the second police raid, the long one where it ends with like a, a, a like a kitchen bowl spinning on the ground for an extended period of time. And you just like, it, it like, honestly, it kind of like made me tear up a little bit because I thought like, it's just, it, it really effectively, I think, communicates just, the systemic issues at the heart of this real life story, right? Yeah. And then we transition to, I think something that's a little more conventional, which is that courtroom stuff. Not a whole lot different than what we got from Sorkin. You know, I think the, the speeches, you still kind of get some speechifying, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a, a notable judge once again. Um, mm-hmm. But I think McQueen, he has a certain tact as a filmmaker and he, he never lets it, get hokey or preachy right yeah and uh you know i think he at the end right when when they get the not guilty verdict and the camera the whole time it's focusing on their the the faces of defendants right we're not we're not getting joseph gordon levitt being portrayed as the kind of good bad guy right mm-hmm. it's like there's just a different uh frame of reference i think going and like i said definitely a good companion piece i think mangrove uh it's just operating at a higher level than Chicago 7, but they're also trying to do different things. Chicago 7's more idealistic mm-hmm. as Sorkin's politics, a little more open. But Mangrove, I, you know, I, think it, it, I, think, I think it's very instructive. And you know, as an ignorant American piece of history that I was uh, not uh, aware, aware of at all. So I'm definitely happy it exists. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things McQueen does when you think about his filmography and the types of stories he tells is he really considers the perspective of the person and how their history affects that i'm forgetting the name of the one but the the mother right the the one who had been orphaned as a child Mm -hmm. um and was worried about if her and her husband went to jail what would happen to their their young son i think it's darkus's wife um which is a bit reductive to say but i'm blanking on the name at the moment um I really liked how he brought in her perspective into this, you know, and sometimes it felt a little bit forced. Like it felt like that was just kind of like roped in at times, but I think the larger message is that these were nine individuals who were facing the same or or similar charges for being part of the same event who all lead completely different lives, but are lumped in together based on the color of their skin. Right. And it does that, I think it tells that so effectively by the way it builds out who each of 
you know, they really highlight, I think, four or five of them to like build out their background. But um, I think it so effectively just kind of captures how when when you're within this, this system of racism, you can be a light skinned uh, black person who's well educated and has, you know, this uh, Black Panther background where they're kind of helping to like make these issues known, or you could be the shopkeeper who's just kind of thrust into being this community leader who might not have as much education that, but has that lived experience. And yeah. you're all the same within that system. I also quite like uh, Jack Loudon's presence as the uh, lawyer who's helping them, kind yeah. of playing this like precocious uh, young attorney. And it's notable. I think he, he, he he's, it's a small role, but he always seems to uh, jump in at the right time. And like the smirk he gives at times when, you know, he's trying to needle the judge seems to be effective. But at the end of the day, they don't let him be like the savior of the nine. It's the great, the grandstanding you get from Letitia Wright and Malachi Kirby's characters at the end of the day is what uh, mm -hmm. probably secures their not guilty verdict, right? The fact that they represented themselves and were able to use their intelligence to uh, point out the, uh, you know, the errors in the, in, in the case, pretty obviously. Right. Mm -hmm. But I, I like Loudon. You know, he he he's had a bit. Of, he has had small roles from time to time. He's in Capone, for example, yep. this this year. Uh, but I thought he was pretty good. That when they first open the trial and he's like trying to say that the the jurors should be all black, and I forgot what it was. I think it, the judge says something like, "Well, let's not make this a race thing." And he and he like sits back down and he like acts like he's all pissed, but then he starts to smile. Like I thought yeah. that was such a brilliant like piece of acting from him because. Yeah, you know, it obviously like kind of gets across the point of this is what they were trying to do, knowing it would fail, but just having it said made a difference. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just a, there are a lot of really, it was a nicely done movie. A lot of special touches on it. Any last thoughts? We're we're gonna keep up with this. So yeah, we're, we're gonna since, since they're all for the most part near feature length, if not feature length, we'll do do this every week. Next week we have Lovers Rock, also screening near film festival, also critically acclaimed. Uh, has already aired in the BBC. You know, uh, England's a week ahead of us with this. Uh, and Lover's Rock's only an hour and eight minutes. Probably, I think it's actually one of the shorter ones. You know, the, the week three is an hour 20, the Boyega episode. But Lover's Rock apparently is very great as well. So happy to keep it going with small acts. And I would say, Netflix, do this with Black Mirror. Let's spread yeah. it out, man. Because when you have this stuff that I think is this dense because it's longer and it's an anthology thing, it's a brand new thing every week, spread it out. It, works it, it sits with you more for sure. Um, all right, Dave, let's just say that we had a movie on Hulu and it had the name of a Joji song, but it didn't actually use the Joji song. Would you consider that a complete failure or just somewhat of a failure? <laughs> it is absolutely a missed opportunity. I'm really sick of saying this, but there's an amazing song called Run. If your thing is called Run and the activity of running is happening in your thing, use the song. <laughs> please just use it but uh yeah run the uh most recent movie from anise chaganti on who chaganti chaganti starring uh sarah sarah paulson um and uh kira allen yeah pretty, pretty much the film debut it's pretty much just those two for like 85 percent of the movie i'd say mm -hmm. uh and you know i just gotta say i'm tired of sarah paulson playing these weirdos like I, it was such a breath of fresh air of her, you know, in uh, Mrs. America sure. uh, or Miss America playing just this. being a conservative wife. Yeah, but <laughs> that's also, what really does like, it for you. 
but but the episode where she takes the drugs and she kind of becomes enlightened to like how maybe you know uh, a more liberal perspective isn't like the worst thing ever um was really good and really fun and sarah paulson got to not be like a super duper weirdo and now she's just back to being um you know that that nurse on netflix which we're not going to go back to uh she's playing this person in run she's basically just like her american horror story characters all over again and she's she's really good at it but Mm. i'm just tired of her playing this i want her to play something a little more uh lighter sure yeah it's definitely familiar i i think it's a good performance because early on it's quite understated like she Mm. doesn't like become more manic till the end but she's good at doing that stuff too Mm-hmm. so it is a good performance but i understand that sentiment like you almost have this preconceived notion going in jason clark he's gonna get cut sarah paulson <laughs> he's gonna she's gonna uh be off her rocker at some point this is what you expect i understand that uh, happy to see this movie I, th- I, th- I think it's a very effective filler film though it makes it two for two for uh anish chavanti you know I-, I really liked what he did with searching back in 2018 really I think innovative movie, but he was smart to not pigeonhole himself by doing another film that has a gimmick of some kind, runs a more conventional thriller film, but still reined in the way Searching was. This time it's because our lead character is in a wheelchair. So everything is going to be like smaller scale and, and, and the struggles, the, the conflicts are, are, are almost slowed down. It's different perspective, right? And I think it's notable that Kira Allen is someone who is in a wheelchair in real life. I think that's a great piece of casting. I think she did a really good job uh, for for debut role. But yep. yeah, I, I I liked it because like there's a lot of suspense with this, but it's all in the daylight, you know. And like mm-hmm. I said, because it's reined in small due to the constraints from the story, uh, you know, it's not the most innovative thriller I've ever seen. But uh, I, I like the energy it had. Yeah. You know, I I think um, I think maybe I didn't like it as much as you. I I think it it definitely was good at being suspenseful um, and kind of uh, filling you with that feeling of dread. But you know, I I think where I just I mean, maybe I'm just tired of of like this sort of story. I feel like there's been a lot of this. You know, there was a series we didn't talk about. Um, God, I'm forgetting the name of it um it's called like mother or something like that that came out this past year um about a oh. very famous story about this oh yeah what was that um yeah forgetting it was also on hulu i believe that which is kind of funny was it? It, it was something like that and uh there was a movie made about no, this on on hbo a couple of years mm-hmm. ago um it's just a type of story that i think gets told over and over and this is a little bit more of like a suspense horror take on it you know like the the get out type uh mode um and i think the moments i liked the most were almost kind of like the ones where she was like figuring things out in a way like the scene where uh you know she's trapped in her room and she crawls across the uh the roof and uses the electrical current in that pen to break the glass when she spits the water on it like that was that was really cool really well done um but there were there were just other parts where i was like some of this doesn't add up some of this doesn't make sense you know like mm-hmm. in the in the hospital when the nurse is talking to her and you know they have like code blue and everybody has to respond i was like there's no way that nurse would just like leave like there's gotta sure. be other nurses that could respond to this also like 
no one sees this girl like looking terrified and is like oh yeah maybe we we shouldn't stop them and see what's going on uh just that that whole part and like the kind of like the last half didn't really yeah drive his too wrong. i definitely like the beginning more than the end for yeah. sure i think the, the build up to the suspense mm-hmm. like like uh when she gets on the computer at night and then it ends and you just see sarah paulson sitting at the uh yeah. table like like a jump scare really the only jump scare the movie has i was like oh that was that was good that was well done that um, was a really great shot and like you're not expecting the jump scare because that's not the way the movie is like telling its story so mm-hmm. and that's well done for sure um yeah you're thinking of uh uh it wasn't the vow it's the act with the joey act. king and patricia arquette which was based off uh, a real life story about a yep. mother like making her kid sit and take advantage of it mm-hmm. and stuff yeah yeah and um that 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 was also the same story that was portrayed in the hbo movie if i'm remembering correctly so it's you know this sort of thing has been told and uh i, I do like the the take and the attempt i just don't know if if this is the type of movie i would normally want to watch uh definitely smaller scale though which i i liked you know just kind of being within the house and getting out like once or twice um yeah also like uh, the time period was very confusing to me because uh this girl i i guess because she had never been really socialized just didn't realize that most people have like phones and you know can use the internet anytime they want just reading books all day i guess yeah, so she didn't have any internet access, right? She didn't have a personal computer or a smartphone. And then they, they made it clear that, like, the surrounding area in the house had no service, so the mailman couldn't use his phone, right? But you're right. Uh, yeah. When she leaves the movie theater, she could have just tried to do some Googling, I guess, with someone else's phone. You're right. But I guess yeah. she, didn't, she didn't know to think of I it. Don't know. Th- yeah. Yeah, I guess there's some logical gaps. But to me, you never felt too ham-fisted. Mm-hmm. Eh, it it's kind of a it's a bit of a forgettable movie for me but i think like you said like searching really like we really liked a lot and uh run eh, it's it's in the middle for me for this year probably like a, a three stars on letterboxd or sure. something like that maybe two and a half this is a notable film because lionsgate sold it to hulu this uh would have had a theatrical release but that was abandoned due to COVID, obviously uh and also when you saw those pills those green pills that uh trying to figure out what they are the whole time. Did you immediately think of the tranquilizers from Queen's Gambit? Because that's what mm-hmm. I did. Yep, that was my first thought too. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but they turned out to be for dogs, so, or animals. Yeah, um, similar. <laughs> interesting. Anyways, uh, any any last thoughts or should we wrap up and decide what we're going to talk about next that's week? That's all good, man. Okay, go for it. What should we talk about next week? We got the end of The Undoing, the end of Fargo Season 4 new miley cyrus album uh as well as lovers rock and small acts episode two which we mentioned before and then <laughs> hillbilly elegy on netflix the glenn close amy adams movie that's apparently a uh disaster and not the oscar hopeful <laughs> everyone thought it was a few months ago so we gotta know what that's about and also speaking of like holiday movies and rom-coms uh, we have happiest season on hulu with Kristen Stewart and I believe Mackenzie Davis as well. Yes, Mackenzie Davis and Daniel. A lot to, lot to talk about. Yeah, plenty of good stuff there for sure. Yeah, I had to catch up on TV this week. There it goes. <laughs> We're basically done with new TV though for the year. There's nothing else on the docket till I think WandaVision 
in middle January. So Hell yeah. time to catch up on stuff and think about lists already. Jesus Christ. List time. Yeah, it's December next week and uh, we'll Can't be here. So give us that, that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod. SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod to listen to the podcast any way you want to. And uh, go to Twitter at NostalgiaPod there too. And Davis at Martin Swagger. Don't follow me. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Yeah.